We don't think there's one way to hit. We don't think there's one way to pitch. But we do believe that there is one efficient way for every athlete to perform at their best, to pitch or hit. We do believe that there's one way for every one of them to do it for them that's best. Mm -hmm. And it's based on what they can physically do. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. In this episode, I welcome Dr. Greg Rose of OnBaseU and the Titleist Performance Institute. A few of the topics we get into. How data-based approaches in baseball can offer important efficiencies that can improve hitting and pitching. OnBaseU has found that one of the most important tasks in baseball is to try and create a common language. We also discuss the way that data is becoming increasingly important in baseball, just as it did in golf, and the possible reasons for the different approaches to data in these sports. Ladies and gentlemen, this episode is so good, and here is Dr. Greg Rose. Dr. Rose, thanks for joining us on Ahead of the Curve. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on, and as I mentioned earlier, I've been uh, been bugging you guys for about a month and a half trying to get you, but you are busy traveling the United States, giving all kinds of conferences and, and spreading the good word of good swings and golf and baseball. But it seems like that baseball is kind of a new venture, or at least it's new to the public, uh, what you guys are doing. So why don't you just tell our listeners, you know, why baseball and tell us a little bit about On Base U. Okay. So, uh, well, first of all, it, you're right, it is new to the public that we're doing, but uh, we've actually been in the baseball world for almost uh, 12 years now, believe it or not. Uh, one of the, our advisory board members from the, the start at TPI was Dr. Tom House, who okay. I'm sure you know really well, and, mm -hmm. and Tom has always been dragging us into the baseball world. We, we actually did a lot of the motion capture for a lot of his players when he was at USC, and then... Uh, we started getting a relationship with uh, several of the major league teams through our uh, medical and fitness programs we do. And it's kind of hard to name a professional team now that doesn't have one of our certified people in the locker rooms working with people. And uh, we've actually been doing in-services with major league baseball teams for years. And uh, we've probably got 17, 18 teams that have uh, some of the guys that do our stuff. So we do a lot of the motion capture. Like when I say motion capture, 3D motion capture, we put sensors on the players, analyze biomechanics like we've done forever with our PGA and LPGA players here at TPI. We do that for a lot of the teams. So we've, we've kind of taken the, the TPI model, which is the Tiles Performance Institute model, which we developed in golf. Hey, uh, it's really important if a, if a coach and a player are struggling to uh, make their player perform optimally. And it could be from a mechanical problem. It could be from an injury, any of those things. We, what we do really well is try and identify the body swing or the body hitting or the body pitching connection. Like, is your body part of the problem or is it just pure technical type of problem? Mm -hmm. And we take a lot of the technology that we've done to do that for golf. And if you think about it, you know, rotary athletes are kind of rotary athletes. And, and baseball has a lot of things in common with golf. That's why a lot of great baseball players are great golfers. And taking that technology and taking that know-how, uh, we've been we've been studying this for a long time in baseball. And literally, uh, about uh, three years ago, we decided that uh, we should start doing some of our certification seminars, like we do for golf, specifically for coaches, for fitness professionals, or medical professionals that work with baseball players. Just because you know we look at all the you know the millions of little league kids and professional players out there playing and. And uh, I think there's a lot of things that we bring to the table that can help them do what they do better. And that's kind of why we did it. Oh, I love it. And, you know, the more that I dig into what you guys are putting out, the more that I, I find myself to, to really, really enjoy it. And, and I love that you guys put out so much stuff that's free. And, and again, thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing with us today. But one thing I, that I had or one question that I had for you 
And uh, I don't know if it was you that that put it out on Twitter or just the you know some of uh, your members of TPI, but you talked about what you guys look for in video and and with swing. So with specifically baseball, you know, when we watch video, what should we really be looking for? So okay, so that that's a loaded question, but basically sure, here yeah. here's uh, we uh, let me talk about a little bit about our philosophy. First. Okay, okay. Sure. So our philosophy, whether we're talking golf or we're talking baseball, we have a very similar philosophy. And our philosophy is this, is that we don't really believe that there's one way to pitch or there's one way to hit, right? We believe that there's an infinite number of ways. Because if you look, you know, if you watch a game any day on TV, you're going to see all different types of styles out there. So who's to say that there's one method that works best and one that doesn't work? What we're saying is is something a little different, which is we don't think there's one way to hit. We don't think there's one way to pitch. But we do believe that there is one efficient way for every athlete to perform at their best, to pitch or hit, we do believe that there's one way for every one of them to do it for them that's best, Mm -hmm. and it's based on what they can physically do. And what I mean by that is instead of telling everybody, okay, here's where your, your back leg needs to be or your back foot, and here's where your elbow needs to be, uh, why don't we physically check you first, see what your back hip or your back foot can do, and let's see what it can't do. And once I know what you can and can't do, well, then I'll show you the best style for somebody with your physical abilities. Because mm-hmm. there's a million ways to skin a cat. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. So, so we literally, we're just like, listen, if you are if you think that, uh, you know, it, it's important for a hitter to have a, a, a good attacking posture with the front shoulder down in the end of the negative move, we're going to go, do you have the physical ability to do that? And and we actually, what we do is we show you, number one, what are the most common characteristics that hitters or pitchers do that create efficiency problems? And we'll go over some of those, and then we'll say, now, that could be a technical problem, or it could be they just physically can't do anything else. So we actually kind of give you strategies on, first, number one, how to identify if this is a technical problem or a physical problem. And then if it is a physical problem, we show you some of the things you can do to eliminate the physical problem, or we can show you how to change the technique to teach around that physical problem, mm, right? That's so, so that's kind of like if you say, hey, uh, people are always like, hey, what should I look at on a video camera? Like you asked me, it's kind of like I, I laugh a lot because we have coaches or we have parents or we have kids that film themselves, mm-hmm. right? And and like let's say, uh, let's go to the golf world. Let's say the most common thing is somebody will film themselves. They'll take a, their video. They'll split the screen on their computer, and then they'll put someone like Tiger Woods or Adam Scott next to them. They'll go to the top of the backswing, take the tiger or Adam to the top of the backswing, and they'll try and figure out why they can't do that and try and mimic what they see those great players do. But I'm telling you right now, there's very few people on this planet that are as flexible as Adam Scott or Tiger Woods, and most of these people have no chance of getting in that position. And it's really frustrating to try and do something that you can't physically do. It's a frustrating lesson for the coach, and it's a frustrating uh, lesson for the athlete. And we're going, listen, there are a lot of players that don't have that flexibility that still make millions of dollars playing baseball every day. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should compare it to what they do, right? Because you probably have a physical chance of doing it. Sure. So those sure. are kind of like, first of all, philosophically, that's our philosophy. Now, a lot of people are like, okay, well, if I don't know, like, how do I know if I can't use a video camera? How do I know if what I'm doing is good or bad, right? There's this, there's this wave of, as you know, sports science and technology that's, taken over baseball uh that that wave has i feel like has been in golf for a long time sure right? we use a lot of, a lot of technology like TrackMan started in golf right mm-hmm. now it's starting in baseball and i i think that one of the big pieces of technology is called uh, 3d motion capture where you put sensors on the player like you'd see like ea sports or you see in motion pictures and that we do that with a lot of the players because Using that technology, we can actually determine if what you're doing is efficient or not, independent of what your style looks like on a video camera. So it might look really different than what you're used to seeing, but we can tell if it's working or not, if that makes sense, like how efficiently you generate power and transfer power. And that's why if you ever see anything with motion capture or 3D, it's not so that you see these cool graphics and this model spinning around. It's really to see is it working? Like it's kind of the the BS detector. Like either this is working or it's not from an efficiency standpoint. So we always start with motion capture here versus video. But I know that most of the people listening might not have motion capture. Right. Like a like, and I say motion capture. Like you'll probably hear names like KVS, which is a great 
way to kind of get your, your motion capture starting out. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to use a video camera, then there are these, let's call these, these characteristics that we see great hitters or great pitchers that a lot of them that have physical limitations tend to do the same things on video. And it can kind of give you a hint that you have some of these problems. And we can go through some of those if you want. Go ahead. Uh, some of these characteristics. So, like, like for example, uh, if you take, let's say we're talking about hitting, and you were asking specifically about hitting, not pitching, right? Sure. Yeah. So, on hitting, if you take a video camera and you look face on, right, a real simple one is if you take a, a hitter, take them in their stance, take a line on your video camera, and there's so many line softwares out there now you can get on your computer, mm-hmm. draw a line from your stance up the middle of your back foot. So, take a line that starts in the middle of your back foot and draw it straight vertical up to the side of the hitter. Now take the hitter to the top of the, to the end of the load or the end of what we call the negative move to where they've moved the farthest away from the pitcher. At that point in time, if you see your back kneecap outside of that line, we call that a sway. So in other words, if your right knee has moved farther away from the pitcher, that's a sway. Most hitters, you'll see that knee never crosses that line. Now if that knee crosses that line and you have a sway, that's a very common characteristic with people who have problems with mobility in the hip or the ankle on the backside. Okay. And if you have those restrictions, then it could definitely affect the way you load and create power. That's a simple example of certain things that we look for on video camera. No, I love that. And you are, <laughs> yeah, you're, so I've been actually trying to correct that with a lot of the different kids that we've got. And so, man, yeah. it's, that's, that's something that I'm definitely going to have to look for. So, so I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, here's, here's, a, here's the correlation for that. So if you see that with a bunch of kids, here's, here's what we do our body hitting connection. Now, they might do that because they just don't know they're not supposed to, right? Mm-hmm. That's a technical right. problem. Definitely. But if it's a physical problem, that's a whole different ballgame. So now how do I know if it's a physical problem? So this is where we do a physical screen. And one of my favorite screens for this, so if you see a kid who's swaying, what I do is I have him drop the bat right away. And I say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your feet one of your foot width apart. So imagine the length of your foot, put your feet that wide apart. Mm-hmm. And then I have them take the bat, take the handle of the bat, and put the handle of the bat right between your feet. So I've got my feet, they're, it's a, you know, one foot width apart is probably around pelvic width apart. So they're standing about one foot width apart, there's a bat right between their feet. I have put their hands on their hips, and then from there, I say without moving your pelvis or your hips, turn your right toe in and try and touch the handle of the bat. And then turn your left toe in and try and touch the handle of the bat. Both of your hips, you should be able to turn your right toe in, touch the bat, left toe in, touch the bat. If you can't, if you're like, man, my right hip can't turn in and touch the bat, hmm. well, then there's a big chance that your hip mobility is causing you to sway. And now that's a physical problem. Now, if you have a physical problem, those are usually easier handled in the gym or, you know, working on it outside of the hitting the hitting cage, whereas if it's just a, hey, my hip works great, I just don't know what I'm doing, well, then I'm going to work that with technical. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely makes sense. And would would okay. that be probably the most common problem that you see with uh, with younger kids? Uh, probably not. Uh, man, no. I would say, you know, one of, the, one of the ones that we see a ton that I think a lot of coaches don't look at is something we call no spacing. And uh, one of our uh, instructors, Don Slott, um, played MLB for a long time as a catcher, mm-hmm. kind of named this no space, which is basically, so instead of looking face on, okay, and this is one that I, I just see so much with young kids, is I look from the catcher view. So yeah. imagine you're looking at a hitter from catcher view. When they set up in their stance, I take a line, I draw a vertical line right behind their butt. So basically this vertical line goes straight, straight up and down, and it's lined up just touching their butt. Now as they take their their negative move, their, their load, and as they go through to contact, you should never see the lower body, the pelvis, move closer to the plate. If anything, it should move farther away from the plate. Mm-hmm. If they move towards the plate, in other words, their lower body moves towards the plate, you'll see daylight between that line and their butt, and their upper body stands up. Uh, there's not a lot of good things that are going to happen. Now, the only the only time that that's acceptable is if it's uh, the pitch is outside and you're going after it, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But if it's over the plate, uh, you should never do that. All right, so I see that a lot with young kids. I think a lot of coaches don't look at that. I, I see uh, some some old teaching things like squishing the bug. We mm-hmm. we kind of I think I think that's a big problem. Um, we have things we call casting the hands, where they kind of throw the hands out a little early, starting with their upper body instead of starting their lower body. 
I think uh, we call it something dump in the barrel, which is like casting or early releasing the, the, the bat. Drifting like a non-firm front leg. We see that a lot with front hip problems and front ankle problems. There's a bunch. We actually have 13 characteristics that we call our big 13. Okay. That really uh, we see a ton with, with young hitters. I love that. And, and, and so I, I want to flip the, the, you know, the side on you and ask you about, you know, about the pitching side, because we're going to have a lot of coaches out there that, that are either yep. doing both or pitching coaches. So what are some of the things that you see for those guys? Same, same kind of deal. So we have the same philosophy, right? So our philosophy is, again, that uh, we don't think there's one way to pitch. Uh, we think that there's a bunch and that uh, you should, uh, you know, physically look at them first, see uh, what they can physically do. But some of the most common things we see with our pitchers. So I would say um, that, and this is, you're going to see good pitchers that do this as well. But one thing that, you know, based on the data that we've looked at, you're going to see hanging back a lot. Now, when I say hanging back is a pitcher who, because this is almost philosophy of style of coaching, but some of the best pitchers start moving towards the hitter rapidly. Mm -hmm. Let's put it this way. And for guys that kind of, again, almost like the hitter that's swaying, that kind of, load to their back foot and stay loaded over there we tend to see some we tend to see some velocity and some timing issues mm-hmm. so uh, we call that hanging back i another thing that i we see a, a ton is is this problem with timing or disassociation between the upper body and the lower body mm-hmm. uh, if a pitcher has a hard time separating their lower body from their upper body and as they step off the mound if the upper body comes with the lower body We'll see these early rotations we call flying open or over rotation. That's where the uh, the hitter is literally not able to kind of keep their back uh, away from the keeping their back to the target to the to the hitter longer mm-hmm. because of a physical limitation of of separating the upper body from the lower body. That's very difficult skill for a lot of people. Of course, shoulder issues, right? So you know if you can't externally rotate your arm like some of these pitchers, or you can't extend your spine, it's really important people don't realize that the, your ability to lay your arm back is directly correlated to your ability to extend your spine. So if you have any tightness in your mid back, and a lot of kids because they sit at school all day with book bags and lean it over, it's hard for them to extend like we see with our major league pitchers. You'll see that it's very difficult for them to lay the arm back. If you if you take a pitcher from side on. So if if you're watching a pitcher, imagine you're taking a video like on the third baseline, and as they're pitching, take them to the point where their elbow or their their throwing hand is laid back the farthest. Mm-hmm. Your the pitcher's hand literally should be below their elbow. If the hand is above the elbow, we call that a high hand, and that's a very very good sign that there might be some type of shoulder problem. We see that same thing we said with the hitter, the, the drifting, the front leg. If you can't firm up your front side, we call it collapsing the front knee. A lot of times we have that with pitchers with their front hip. Uh, the hip mobility is not good. And we also, we look at the glove hand too, obviously with pitchers. That kind of helps stabilize and rotate. We look for a glove that's unstable and kind of moving in different directions. I know I'm throwing a lot of things at you, but we look at a bunch. No, I, I'm sitting here taking notes, going, "Okay, okay, I I understand that." And and the terminology may be somewhat different, but that's a big deal. What you just said right there is, is one of the things that we found that was different from golf and baseball. So when we went into baseball, there was not a common language, right? Sure. And yeah, yeah. and that terminology, like you just said, is so important. That's one thing that we try and do at On Base University is we try and create a language and we try and speak the same language between the medical, the fitness, and the coach, so we can communicate better. I love that. Like if we're talking about our our 13 most common, let's call it inhibitors or characteristics that we see with pitchers. And, and I say, you know, we have swaying, hanging back, closing the front side, closing the back side, flying open, late riser, high hand, collapsing front knee. And you're like, what the heck are you talking about? We're not communicating properly. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important. Like in golf, anybody who plays golf knows the word like over the top or, you know, like there's certain words that it's just very common language. In baseball, we didn't see a lot of that. So we are kind of creating a language and on base. No, definitely. And, you know, I, I, we, we talk about external and internal cues all the time. And I, I think that, yeah. that that if we have a common language and we all understand what we're asking, that just cuts out so much of the teaching time yeah. of it. That's step one. Absolutely. So with the, with the 13 things, is that something that you guys do with the clinics or is that something that's available online? So you'll see, if you go into onbaseu.com, you'll see a couple of them on there. We're going to be adding a bunch of them. If you go to like our, the golf one that we've been doing forever, like my TPI, we have, we have all of our characteristics for golf on there on our online 
uh, just on our website, complimentary. We're slowly adding all those on base, so those are coming. You'll be able to see all those. Um, our classes, the way our workshops work, is if you sign up for a workshop, like on golf, on TPI, you'll get an online class first. You go through this online class of four or five hours. It's kind of like a prereq kind of preparing you for the workshop. Then you come to this live workshop, two days, 16 hours. We go through and we teach you, literally, we teach you the most common characteristics like we just talked about. Then we teach you how to do the physical screen to see if those are caused by physical or if it's just technique. And what's really cool about the physical screen is I literally can take a player, take them through a physical screen, never watch them hit, never watch them pitch, and we can literally predict what your pitching and your hitting will look like. And it's scary how good we are at that, right? And that's kind of what we do with these workshops. And then we'll show you some of our favorite, obviously, exercises and drills to attack these problems that you find. Oh, that's that's fantastic. And and I love that. And, and hopefully I'll be able to attend uh, one of those soon. But you know, I, something that really stuck out to me that you have mentioned a lot of different times, and that's we're trying to build the engine with young kids. And so talk to us about what you focus on with youth athletes and just kind of take our audience through your rationale behind it. Yeah, so we, the world of athletic development or youth athletic development is a, it's a, it's an interesting world. And I think it's filled with uh, misconceptions and bad coaching and uh, things that, really just don't make sense if you really sit back and look at it. And I think there's tons of reasons. We can go into all the reasons why this is bad, but I'm just going to tell you what we do. And I just, I think that uh, it's based, just uh, put it this way, it's based on a lot of research. And we do something that a lot of people call long-term athletic development, which is basically if I take a kid, let's say I take a six-year-old and I take them to school and I say, listen, my six-year-old does not know math. And I want you to teach them math. Any school in the United States will say, no problem. Let me show you our curriculum. Here's what we do in first grade. Here's what we do in second grade, third grade, fourth. And they'll show you all the way to high school. And by the time your kid gets become a senior, they're probably doing calculus, right? And it works. Mm-hmm. If I go to most academies, sporting academies around the world, and I say, here's my six-year-old, and they play soccer, and they don't really know how to play soccer. And I say, can I see your curriculum? They're going to look at you like you're nuts, Right. Because they, it's kind of like normally you have rookies coaching rookies. You don't really have the best coaches working with the youth. A lot of the best coaches, because there's more money playing professional sports, they move up and try and do that. And a lot of these are volunteer parents that aren't really coaches, and they're trying to do their best. But, you know, they don't have a, a 10-year, 12-year curriculum of how to develop a baseball player, and they haven't even really thought about it like that. So what we do is we say, listen, let's treat this like any other subject in school or anything that we want to teach a kid, we're going to teach a kid how to play baseball, right? Mm -hmm. And if I'm going to teach a kid how to play baseball or going to pitch, we should sit down and go, okay, as experienced coaches, as developers of young athletes, what would we teach in first grade? What would our subjects be? What would our, what would the classes look like? What would each of the lessons look like? And if you do that and you lay out a a 10-year curriculum, a 15-year curriculum, you you take a kid at six and take them to 16, it's amazing how different your program will look than what most academies are doing right now. Because if you literally sit down and do the planning, you would say, like, listen, if we were to sit here and talk about what do you think kids need if they want to play Major League Baseball right now? What do you think? Give me some give me some things that you think they should learn how to do. Just thinking off the top of my head, uh, learn to rotate. Yeah, top of your head. Okay, so that learning how to rotate is a physical skill, a coordination physical skill, mm-hmm. right? Sure. What else? Uh, learn how to barrel up balls consistently at one point in time. Okay, so that's hand-eye coordination. Mm-hmm. Yep, keep going. Learn well. The older that they get, they're going to have to learn to uh, have adjustability in that in that swing. Okay, so you got to be able to adjust. Be able to. That's, there's some vision there. There's some reaction time. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have to. You're gonna say, okay, listen. You're gonna have to have a certain exit velocity or pitch velocity. We need some power. Right. Uh, we're gonna need some flexibility. We're going to need all the skill. There's going to be physical things. There's going to be mental things. There's going to be technical things. And if you sit down and you go, I got to build this into my curriculum, then you sit down and you go, okay, so I need, here's the physical skills I need. I need speed. I need power. I need flexibility. I need endurance. Uh, Here's the technical things I need. I need, you know, hand-eye coordination. I need to be able to grip. I need posture. I need stance. I need to be able to, you know, so you go through and you do all the lists and here's the mental things. And then you sit down and go, okay, so what should we teach in first grade? And what should we teach in second grade? And when you do this, like at TPI, we launched in 2008, we launched a 13-year curriculum for coaches for golf 
on what you should do every week for 13 years. Wow. Right. And that, that, but you think like it sounds ridiculous, but any school in the country can do that for math or science or English or, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of funny that people are like, wow, that's crazy. And I'm like, no, it's actually crazy that we don't have that. Right. So the first thing we do is we say, let's just, let's just do what schools have done for years that have been very successful. Let's first just sit down and figure out what the curriculum should be for kids. And when you do that, you realize it's not all technical, by the way. Sure. It's not like, okay, here's how you hit, here's how you pitch. I mean, first of all, the number one, the number one characteristic, the number one skill that if a kid doesn't have, they quit baseball. Do you know what that is? I was actually going to add how to deal with failure, but I don't know if that's what you're looking for. Well, I'm saying, like, what do you think most kids that quit at a young age, they quit because they can't do what? If a kid goes out there and they just completely suck at baseball, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, okay, I just don't want to play. Like, a lot of people will be like, okay, if you want to be good at baseball and if a kid doesn't want to quit, he's probably got to be able to throw or he's got to be able to hit. And actually, the first skill that if a kid doesn't know how to do this, he quits because it sucks getting hit in the face is called catching, right? Like, literally, catching is one of the most important skills for a kid to enjoy baseball. So we actually look at that as well, too, going like in first grade, we, we focus a ton of time on catching because it's just, again, it's not fun to get hit in the face of the baseball. That's right? true. Yeah, that's true. So you go through and you, uh, you change. I just think your, your curriculum will look very different if you really sit down and think about it. And we always develop athletic skills before we develop baseball skills. So if I take a kid and I develop an incredible athlete, I can turn them into a baseball player faster and get them to a higher level than if I turn a turn them into a baseball player first and then try and turn them into an athlete, which is really interesting. Yeah, when it comes to the way sense. you develop kids and, and developing power and speed, it's just as they get older, it's harder to develop the athletic skills. It's easy to do it when they're young. It's harder to do it older. But it's easier to develop the technical skills when they're older, not when they're younger. And so mm-hmm. many coaches do that backwards. Right? right. So the order and the timing of which you teach these skills, we think is also critically important. That's oh. kind of a, how we attack our junior programs. No, I love that. And, and one of the reasons I said rotational velocity was the first one is because you guys all you guys mentioned that there's a limited time to be able to develop a lot of those different athletic movements right. and those athletic That's skills. We call, those, we call those those windows. And we're like, and it's I'm telling you, it's scary. The more we do this, we tell parents this all the time. You got one chance to do this right. If you don't develop these skills, at a young enough age, at the, at the correct time, because there are, there's like this magical times in every human's life because of the way your nervous system is developing, your skeletal structure, your cardiovascular system, like, for example, speed. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to develop speed, like you're mentioning, if I take a, a, a bow and arrow, is it easier to shoot the arrow faster if the string is, if it's taut or if it's loose? You know, you want a tight string. It'll actually the arrow will shoot faster, right? Right. So if you look at kids like bow and arrows, when kids are growing fast, the bones grow faster than muscles. When the bones grow faster than the muscles, the muscles tend to get put on tension. So literally when kids are growing fast, like during their growth spurt or when they're really young, they tend to be a little tighter. And when they're a little tighter, we actually can take advantage of that and develop speed faster, we've noticed. Okay. Now, if you don't attack during those windows, it doesn't mean that you can't do it later. We just don't see the, the explosive athletes. All the, the best ones that we know started younger. Mm-hmm. It's hard to develop that when you're older. And that's just one little example. Like strength is another example. You want to develop strength? Well, there's a couple ways to develop strength. Learn how to use your muscles using your, your nerves and your brain or tear the muscle and build back bigger muscles. But when you tear a muscle... If you're going to go build back bigger muscles, you need the building blocks. Now, the building blocks are the raw materials to build a bigger muscle. One of the things that's required is a hormone called testosterone. Well, testosterone doesn't start to secrete until your puberty or your growth spurt. So if you try and do strength before the growth spurt, usually what you do if you're trying to tear muscle, you just get an injury. If you do it during the growth spurt, that's one of the highest times you're going to start spiking with testosterone. We can get incredible strength gains. Those are just a couple examples of windows where we're always like, you got to do it at the right time. And that's why in your curriculum, you put those activities at that phase in your curriculum. Yeah, no, and that's really, really, really good. And so, you know, this is kind of a broad question and you can kind of take this however you want, but we're talking a lot about the younger athletes, but what do you see as, as a lot of the differences that you deal with between the younger and the older athletes? So every decade you're alive, great friend of mine, Mike Boyle, who was the strength coach for the Boston Red Sox when they won the World Series and, uh, the, a couple of years ago and, and uh, works with a lot of hockey players. 
Mike always has a saying that I just I, I can't say enough. He said, for every decade you're alive, that's what percent of your program should be based on mobility. So if you're 70 years old, 70% of your program in the gym should be mobility-based. Yeah. So first and foremost, as you get older, obviously, to try and maintain your range of motion is really important, right? So mobility is very, very important. If, if you have muscles are like rubber bands. You can create elastic energy out of your muscles. But if you can't pull the rubber band back, you're in trouble, mm-hmm. right? So we obviously, we do a lot of mobility stuff. Now, with that said, some kids are some of the tightest people we've ever seen, right? So just because they're young doesn't mean they're not, don't have flexibility problems, especially nowadays with what they do at school. So first and foremost, adults, um, it's more mobility-based. Kids, I'd say it's definitely more speed, power, strength development type of stuff would be my, my first goals, if mm-hmm. that makes sense, in and in just from a general standpoint. Sure, sure. Going back to, to something that you mentioned earlier, which is disassociation. So we started doing some of the different uh, shoulder ro- or like torso rotations and pelvic rotations, trying to be able to disassociate. Yeah. You know, it, it was so funny because these are things that I used to take for granted. And so I would show the kids that and it was almost comical getting them to oh, getting them to people try don't and, realize. Oh, and, they're horrible, right? They're horrible. And it was terrible, but like day one was terrible. Day two is a little bit better than day three. They're starting to figure it out and then it yep. just magically works into their swing and, and I'm it's so just, glad you said that. Because so many coaches tell me they're like, I tried that on my kids and nobody can do it, so it can't be correct. Right, well, yeah. again, look at that. After three days, your kids are doing it. The problem is, is just because your kids can't do it doesn't mean there's something wrong with it, especially when we tell you these tests. These tests come from what we see our minor league and major league players do. Mm-hmm. If they could do it, then it, it's probably something you want to put in the curriculum, right? Right. It's kind of how we look at it. No, definitely. And tell me what you think about this. So we are well, mostly indoors right now. And one of our, you know, hitting rotations is a, just a dry workstation. And we're, and we're trying to work in a lot of the different things that you guys are doing, like with uh, just T-spine and hip mobility and obviously disassociation we were just talking about. But if you were going to, like, say we wanted to do one a day, and again, I, I would love to be able to do individual screens with every kid, but, but if I was just kind of going to kind of throw it all out there and just say, hey, guys, we're going to pick one a day. And we're going to try and all work on these and then eventually get to a point where I could individually do it. But what would you say some of those foundational, you know, staples exercises would be that could help every kid? Okay. So let me, you, you just asked a bunch of questions, right? There. I did. So I'm, you're right. I'm sorry. No, that's good. So, so basically the first thing is, is how do you handle group dynamics when everybody has their own individual problem? Right. right? That's the yeah. first question you asked. And, and basically uh, we, always screen as a group, right? So when we're testing, I don't think you have to do individual testing. Okay. Like if you want to check, can kids disassociate, rotate the lower body from everybody? You can say, everybody get in the line, watch me. Let me see if you can do it. And I just go down the line. And I go, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And we just check off the box, right? So group screening is very fast and easy. You don't have to do individual testing. Now, when you're done with your group screening, and you're going to go through and you're going to check things like you're going to check, can they rotate their spine? Can they rotate their hips? Are their ankles flexible? Are their shoulders have the right range of motion? Can their neck move? Do they have the stability to strengthen? You're going to go through the basic checklist of the things that we would check. Mm-hmm. And when you're done, you're going to see pretty quick that you could probably group these kids into groups of very similar problems. That makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Now, what I like to do is I like to do like day one, we test everybody. And then I go through and I go, okay, let's take all my kids who have let's say, flexion problems, like they can't bend over touch their toes, or extension problems, they can't extend backwards. And I take my kids who have, like, rotation problems, they can't rotate right or left, or their hips or their spine, or I've got kids with shoulder problems or wrist problems. I take those kids, I go as a group, and I go, okay, listen, for you guys, your problem is is spine and hip rotation. So I want to show you guys three or four activities that when I say we get to your sniper station, you're going to do this in your sniper station. And I show them three or four exercises. Then I show the ankle guys. Here's three or four exercises. Your sniper station. Everybody gets their what I call sniper station. That's targeted exactly for them. Okay. Then when we go do group activities, like you were saying, you know, I might have, let's say, there's six activities or six exercises that we're all going to do because all baseball players need this. They need, you know, they they need good hip hinging. They need good spine extension. They need good shoulders. We're all going to do all this together. And let's say, imagine I had like nine training stations and kids would rotate between these nine training stations. Training station one, we all do the same thing. Training station two, we all do the same thing. When you get to training station number three, 
That's your sniper station. Do your activity. Then we go, we're all going to do station four. We're going to do station five. Station six, it's sniper station two. Do it again. Then we're going to go seven, eight, and sniper station number three is station number nine. So I kind of, I mix in these individualized stations in with the group ones. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think, I think kids enjoy that. They, and parents like this too, because they know that their kids are getting the individual needs that they, they know they need, but they're also, we're developing those in those common stations. Obviously, we can sit down and talk about all the things we think every baseball player needs, and we'll mm-hmm. put them in there. You know what I mean? I'm right there with you. And myself being a, a guy that I literally want, I want to help every player get better. And the last yeah. thing that I want to do is to throw everything at everyone and expect them all to get better at the same rate. And that's just not right. practical. No, not at all. Totally agree. And by the way, one-on-one is not better than group. Most kids, most adults prefer working out in a group. It sure, makes you yeah. it's more fun. They come back more. There's the whole group camaraderie type of thing. But you still want to make sure you attack their individual problems. And that's kind of why we do the sniper activities. Sure, absolutely. And uh, another thing that, that I've been talking to a lot of the kids lately is uh, just the kinematic sequence or connection or like, well, I guess like you mentioned, having a common language, that would be, that would be nice. But uh, tell us a little bit about that and, and how that, how that plays a role in not only pitching, but hitting as well. Yeah. So when I mentioned earlier that our philosophy is there's not one way to pitch or there's not one way to hit, but there's one efficient way for everybody to pitch or hit. And it's based on what they physically do. Mm-hmm. The key word there was efficient. I said, you know, I don't care what it looks like. I just care that it's efficient. And efficiency to me is you know where it's going, you can reproduce it, and you can maximize power with the least amount of effort. That's efficient. Now, I told you that we use 3D motion capture to measure efficiency. Now, a lot of people are like, well, how do you, how does a motion capture machine tell me if what I'm doing is efficient or not? Now, literally what, what it does is when we put these sensors on you and we reproduce your body on a computer and we go through, we can actually look at literally like I always say the analogy is like cracking a whip. I can see if you know how to crack the whip or if you don't really know how to crack the whip. Sure. And the way we do that is by looking at a graph and there's one graph that literally there's been so much science and research over the last 20 years on this graph that really tells me how efficient you are at generating power and transferring power. And that graph from 3D motion capture is called the kinematic sequence graph, right? And that's where this comes from. So literally, the first thing we ever do with a hitter or pitcher is we hook them up motion capture and we look at their kinematic sequence. Now, the kinematic sequence is literally how a player creates power from the ground how that energy is created, how much they create it, and in what sequence they create it with which body parts, and then how they transfer that through their body. And if you look at the best hitters or the best pitchers in the world, let's talk about hitters first. If you look at the best hitters, they're going to start energy from the ground. So their mm-hmm. feet are going to create this rotary power. It's going to transfer up to their pelvis. Their pelvis is going to start to go first. Then they're going to transfer the energy to their trunk, their rib cage. Then they're going to transfer to their arms and then to the bat and into the ball. It's going to be from the ground right to the bat to the ball. What's funny is, is you think, well, everybody does that. But that's not true. If you look at, like, in Little League, you'll see some kids, the, let's say the lower body starts, and then all of a sudden here comes the bat, and then here comes the, lower, the arm, and then here comes the trunk, and it's like the energy crashes in the middle. Right. But we can actually measure that now with, with this motion capture. And, and that's the same thing we can do with pitching, same thing with hitting. And that's why you're hearing this kinematic sequence, something that's completely taken over the golf instruction world is now bleeding into the baseball world because it's like cheating for a coach. It's like, I can tell you exactly where your problem is and I know where to focus. That's what the kinematic sequence does. That's, that's something that, again, it's been talked about for a long time, but I think that it's, it's, again, you said it's catching fire now because there's actually ways to measure it and use data to actually, you know, show what's, what's going on. I'll tell you why I think, like, I've always said, I think two sports are just so much farther ahead from technology standpoint. I always say it's like Formula One and golf. Mm-hmm. And I just because I've seen, you know, some of the Formula One teams and obviously some of the stuff we do with golf. And I think, uh, I think it's because if you look at baseball and you look at basketball and you look at football, most of those sports are run by owners. Owners pretty much run these leagues. They, they buy the players, they do stuff, and they spend a lot of their money on players. I don't want to say they, they don't spend a lot of money on R&D or on development, but some are better than others. It's not their primary focus. Their primary focus is, is buying players. If you go to golf for Formula One, it is not run by owners. It's run by manufacturers. 
manufacturers spend tons and tons of money on research and develop to, on development to develop the latest products. So we had like, you know, we have incredible budgets here at Titleist to analyze and study our players, right, to try and develop the best equipment. And that's gave, given us a lot of toys like the Trackmans and things like that that uh, we've been spoiled with for years. And now I think, you know, in the world of professional sports with baseball and basketball and football, they're starting to go, hey, I think uh, all this technology that's been out there and been developed, I think we can use this to help develop our players as well. And it's it's just it's going like a tidal wave through baseball right now, which is great. Right. Yeah, definitely. And and there's a couple of things that, that I always tell our kids and we're limited on what we can measure because we're, you know, we don't have a track man and, you know, we, we've only got so many number crunchers on, on our staff. So one thing I always tell them is, is we're going to measure what we treasure and we're going to measure for motivation. So you can see, and with Absolutely. all this different stuff that, that we've got now is you can physically, or you can, you can see yourself improving or digressing. And we're going to take a couple of things that we truly think are going to help you become a better baseball player and two yeah. help our team win. I'll add, I'll add one more. I'll Go add ahead. one more to your list. Why, why guess if you can assess, right? right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good. It's just like, if you want a kid to be committed and all in, prove it. Mm-hmm. So listen, here's the data. It's not my opinion. Here it is. Right. And I think, in golf and, you know, another difference in golf and baseball is, is our players, if, if there's no contract, they don't have a contract. If they don't play well this week, they don't get paid, right? And when you're working on them, it's kind of like, uh, hey, I want to make sure I'm working on the right thing. And, of course, every baseball player wants the same thing. And I think a lot of times for us in the development world, you know, we can show a player facts, stats, and go, listen, here's what the data says on your hip versus other people's hip. And here's this, it, it makes the player comfortable that they're working on the right thing. And like you said, they can compare themselves to two years ago to now and see if we're going in the right direction. Right. Huge. right. And I, I got the opportunity to present in front of a group of coaches and I threw out those two things. And, and another one that, that I really think that, that helps our kids and just helps us more truly more as coaches is, is we want to figure out what the truth is and not teach just tradition. And, and that's something that I've I've had to fight myself because my dad played in the major leagues for eight years and and I grew up hearing all of these different baseballisms I guess and so I'm constantly trying to tell myself okay is this actually happening or is this just something that that we've done as a tradition of baseball for the last 150 years? 100. percent And with you, and to even add on top of that is usually we teach what worked for us. Yeah, definitely. Right. So that's why you know I always say there's. There's two types of coaches. There are coaches that have studied on how to coach, and they're really good at it. They understand how humans learn and motor learn and teaching. And then there are coaches who they basically studied how to play, mm-hmm. right? They're just they're players. And those two are two completely different animals in my mind. And I think they're used that they should be used in two different situations as well, right? And sometimes when you take a, a person who's just spent their whole life learning how to play and you ask them, well, what's the secret? Like, how do I learn how to throw or how do I learn how to hit? They're going to tell you what they're working on now and all the things that they do automatically, they've forgotten about, mm-hmm. right? That most of the people that they're teaching don't know how to do. And a lot of times, some of the worst lessons you'll ever get is from ex-players. Mm-hmm. Right. And and it's just because, again, it's just, it's so automatic to them, they're not even thinking about that. And I think that's why I think the best of the best are somebody who was a player who's also studied to be a coach. Now we're talking somebody who can be a Hall of Fame coach. You know what I mean? Right. So it's a kind of a funny quote, but a couple of years ago, I had a, a coaching friend of mine. Uh, we, talk, we talked about something similar about that. And he goes, well, those who can do and those who can't, they coach. <laughs> I thought that was really, really good. As long as they, as like I said, that quote right there is, you know, used a lot of time is, is, is when they say they can't do, as long as they're not talking about, well, they can't play professionally, so they can't coach. Some of the best coaches in the world never play professionally. Oh, you know what I mean? Definitely. Definitely. And some of the worst coaches play professionally. I always laugh because, you know, we do a lot of stuff with the teams and I look at some of these coaches and I'm like, some of the coaches are there obviously because they're great players and they're trying to give a technical lesson. And I'm like, you can see they've never had any training on how to give a technical lesson. Mm-hmm. But if I'm like, if I'm on the deck and I'm nervous and I don't know how to face this pitcher and I don't know how to see something, I want to talk to that guy, the guy who played, sure. right? He can help me. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I'm trying to teach a, a little leaguer on how to set up, how to, how to swing a baseball bat. That might not be the best guy. 
You know what I mean? Definitely. Definitely. Well, one thing I wanted yeah. to ask but before we go, I, I'm sure we, we don't have a ton of time left, but something that I, I've really tried to find a, a balance in it. And it's a difficult balance for me just because I'm working with youth age kids, but that's blocked versus random practices and how we can implement them. And, and again, I, I don't want to be too far on the block side because they're constantly having to make decisions in games. And I want them to be ready for that, but I don't want to just throw them, throw them in the fire and just expect them to figure it out. I know we, we talk about Bernstein theory all the time, but I think it's taken out of context. So Kind of what's that balance between blocked versus random, and then how can we navigate that? I spent a lot of years traveling around teaching with uh, two of the best motor learning experts of all time, but, and I tell you, I learned a ton from these guys. And let, let me start by saying this. First of all, it's very clear block and random both show gains in learning, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're going backwards doing one or the other. We're talking about which one's going to make you learn the most. And mm-hmm. the research is extremely clear on this, that block practice allows somebody to perform better in practice, mm-hmm. but it doesn't make them learn like random practice does, right? So in other words, if you ever had one of those, like, you're like, I'm, I was in the batting cage and I was practicing this and it was great. And then I got up there and every, I don't know what happened in the game. It just fell apart mm-hmm. or yeah. you know, I was on the driving range and it great and I went to play and I don't know what the hell happened. That's, if you do block practice, a lot of times you perform really well in practice and you think you're learning. There's this illusion that you're learning. But I always say that the great way to understand why that is an illusion is if I said, okay, I'm going to test your mathematics, right? How's your mathematics? Mine? How's your terrible. Mathematics? Yeah. <laughs> Not good. So if, I said, hey, if I said, what's 27 times 12? What's I'd 27 have, times 12? I'd get a calculator. Right. So if I, but if I said, okay, you can't use a calculator, you got to use a pen and paper. Now you'd start, you'd, you'd write down 27 times 12 mm-hmm. and you'd go through and you would do your math and it would take you maybe 20 seconds, 30 seconds. And you'd get this number and I'd say, listen, 27 times 12 is 324. Mm-hmm. Okay. You believe me? It's 324. Yep. Okay. Now if I said, okay, let's practice again. What's 27 times 12? 324. Wow. You just got better math, right? I did. You're right. Yeah, now that's the illusion. Like you think you're getting better math, but you didn't do math. Like you better just regurgitated it. something you already knew from the previous repetition, right? Mm-hmm. So people think like, well, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go and let's set the machine to 70 miles an hour and I'm going to go in there and it's going to do fastball and I'm going to go do this 50 times. The first one you had to do math on. Mm-hmm. The second one you had previous information that you're not going to have in a game, right? And what happens is you think that you're literally learning and learning and learning, but the rate of which you're learning is pretty poor. Whereas if I said 27 times 12 is 324, if I now said, okay, what's 89 times 63? And you had to solve the problem again. Now guess what? You're doing math again. Right. And now when you get into the game, I don't know what formula I'm going to throw at you, but at least you're practicing. And now it's more frustrating to do that, right? In practice. Practice doesn't seem as like I'm getting this far. It feels more frustrating. I don't know what I'm doing. But in the game, you will play better. So the way I like to say this is this. All right. Block practice is great with a kid or if you're with a, giving a student a lesson to make sure they understand how to play the game. Okay. Right. So if I'm like, let's do 27 times 12. Let me just make sure you know how to do math uh, multiplication. Okay. We're going to do put them in a column here. Now, once you understand how to do multiplication, it makes no freaking sense to do 27 times 12, 50 times. Zero. Right. right. You immediately go into random because that's how you're going to learn. But you have to say to them. Now, listen, this is going to be hard, right? When you're here practicing with me, this isn't easy. I'm going to torture you. I'm going to press you. I'm going to make this difficult. I'm going to try and push you to your limits. But then when you go play, man, it's going to be easy. That's what the research says, if you want to learn. No, that's very, very good. Well, I'm going to leave you with this one. And again, this could be the entire bulk of our conversation could be spent on this. But where do you hope to see baseball in 10 years? Um. You're asking the easy question. Oh, that's an easy one. Um, okay. I'm kidding. Where do I want to see baseball? So here's what I would love. Okay. So I think what what I found that's missing, and this is what I think we want to, this is what we want to try and solve at on base. I believe a baseball player is like a, a Formula One car. Okay. They're the car. Now, the driver of that car is the coach, right? Now, if you go to Formula One, a driver has very specific job. Right. Number one, to drive the car fastest, most efficient way possible. But it's also 
to be able to drive that car the fastest, you have to be able to read the dashboard. And on the dashboard of a NASCAR or Formula One car, there's certain dials. There's RPMs, there's temperature, there's oil. And if there's any problems that are showing up on that dashboard, I talk to my pit crew, right? And me and my pit crew kind of help solve these problems. A driver in baseball, a coach of a player, a coach has a couple dials that they should be able to read on any player that they work on, right? The first dial should be a technical dial. They should be able to tell if there's a technical problem. They should probably be able to handle that themselves. There's also an equipment dial. You know, what's crazy to me is that I don't even see bat fitting or I, I don't I, even shoe fitting or equipment. There's so many thing variables with equipment on what's the right length and weight and flex and uh, that, that I think a, a, a coach should be able to read to see if that dial's wrong for that player. There's a mental dial. You should be able to see if the kids got stinking thinking or if they're if they're using their brain properly. Mm-hmm. And then of course there's a physical dial. I should be able to check to see if my car can works the way most cars work. And if it doesn't, I need to talk to my pit crew. And I would love for there to be pit crews all over the United States or all over the world where if I'm a coach and I go, listen, there's a problem with the player's right hip, I can take them to the pit crew, and the pit crew understands the terminology of baseball, understands what the driver is trying to accomplish with this car, and can help them solve the problem. That's the world we're trying to create at OnBase. Mm-hmm. That would be the dream. Oh, that's I love that, and I don't think there's a better way to end the show than that. But if there are any listeners who you know just want more information about you or would like to get in contact with you or your team, what would be the best way to do that? Easiest way, if you go to onbaseu.com or you can go to my TPI, as in my Tiles Performance Institute.com. So onbaseu, my TPI. We also, if you're in tennis, we have a tennis program with the United States Professional Tennis Association called Racket Fit. You can go to racketfit.com, but any of those will get you to me and any of our workshops. I'm just going to open up the mic for you, and it truly was a pleasure to be able to get to interview you today. But is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? No, I just I would just say, hey, let's keep keep your mind open, keep trying to learn new things. I feel like I'm changing everything I do every year because I'm, I've got that growth mindset, open mindset, and just know that uh, all of us have the same goal. I think that is to make kids enjoy and love this game and build that passion. And I think if we can do that together, it'd be a better world. Thanks, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. Before you go, I'd love to be able to get in touch with you, and we have several different ways of doing so. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AOTC underscore podcast. You can join the AOTC Coaches Facebook group. And if you want to be a part of the mini clinic emails, both of those links are listed below. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating or review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.